From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Mealtime is a time for pleasure and relaxation. It's the best opportunity the family has to talk together. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why we collect, curate, and bring you the best audio stories available worldwide. We search high and low, near and far, on the internet, the airwaves, podcasts. We eat and drink the stuff for dinner so that we can bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Table manners are important because people judge many things about you just by the way you eat. At my house, I'm lucky if I can herd the cat, I mean, children, around the trough, I mean, dinner table, a few nights a week. Dinner, meaning whatever's not moldy in the fridge, and table, meaning any nearby shelf. Leave it to Beaver, it's not. Today on ReSound, the dinner table, and all that it inspires. The dinner table can really strut her stuff on a holiday. Her best china, polished silverware, mounds of food, and all the aunts and uncles circled around her, ooing and eyeing. She is the focal point, the centerpiece, the stage on which any number of family dramedies can play out. You and Dad learned a lesson on that trip. What lesson is that, Marianne? Don't ever invite a boyfriend without consulting the daughter. That's my own family, recorded in 1992 on Hanukkah. I made it out of clay, and when it's not a wedding, I'll play. As a young producer, I often use my family as guinea pigs. You'll love me years from now when I play this. And apparently, I wasn't the only one. Producer Jonathan Goldstein also recorded his family at a holiday dinner. What we were both doing was gathering evidence, proof that our relatives really were as weird as we thought. Here's Jonathan Goldstein's Big Night. When I was a teenager, the Rosh Hashanah tape was the first thing I'd show any new girlfriend. It was a primer on my family that I felt they would need to see in order to best understand me. In showing them the tape, it was like I wanted to make them understand that no matter how messed up I was, all things considered, I really could have been a lot worse. It's been about 10 years since I've looked at the tape. Are you filming me? Yeah. Johnny, put that away. Come on. The night begins with a feeling of expectation, everyone preparing for the big night. My mother clears stacks of laundry off the dining room table. With a great show of ceremony, she and my father move the plastic-covered red velvet couch away from the wall and pull out the extra dining room table leaves from behind it. We'd only use the table twice a year. You all the way? Later in the evening, people start to arrive. When I'd show this to girlfriends, I would freeze frame on each of the cast and explain a bit about them. This is my Uncle Lou, I'd say. On the night of his mother's death, he ate an entire brisket, so great was his grief. Hi, kid. Say hi. Don't give me a close-up because my eyes are too ugly in a close-up. Placing the camera up to my eye and squinting into it like that felt good. The way it covered up my face like a mask and stuffed the whole Yiddish circus of my family into a tidy, manageable little frame that I could fade in and out at will. The camera has everything on it. Everything. I am. Has it got a stand, too? You named the one thing it doesn't have. Early on in the night, I filmed my mother in the kitchen. She dances around and sings for the camera while preparing dinner. My grandmother walks in at one point and asks her where the Kleenex is, and my mother tells her to use toilet paper. No, go use toilet paper. 
You don't mean In our house, whether you were blowing your nose, mopping up spilled pea soup, or bandaging a head injury, it was toilet paper. As a kid, I was embarrassed by this. Toilet paper. It sounded so personal, and pulling it out of my lunch bag to use as a napkin in the high school cafeteria brought just enough of my family bathroom to the table to make those around me lose their appetite. My mother's singing and dancing around the house was another point of embarrassment for me as a kid. I felt like watching her sing Let's Get Physical while cooking pancakes was a mild form of child abuse. Watching her now on the tape, I realized she was singing not because she was crazy, but because she was actually happy. Both her parents were still alive, so she'd let herself act like someone's little kid sometimes. I haven't seen her sing like that in years. The presence of the video camera puts my great-aunt Simi in a time capsule kind of mood. She decides to tell this story about her son for posterity, so my father helps her shout the table down. When Jeffrey was four years old, we went downtown, and we were caught in the rain waiting for the bus. So there was a Reitman store on St. Lawrence and St. Catherine with a little hallway, so we went in to wait, and there was display in the windows of the ladies' laundry and the night, you know, everything. He looks in the window and there's men and women shielding themselves from the rain. Mummy, what's that? I take a look and I give his hand a jerk. I say, nothing. Oh, you know, you know, you have it in your drawer. Guess what it was? A pair of falsies. (laughs) When I was a teenager, right here is where I'd pause the tape. I would freeze frame the image of my great aunt Simmy, mouth open, just about to pop in an olive. With that as my backdrop, I would tell the story of how, when I was a child, Simmy would command me to pinch her buttocks. You can't pinch it, she'd cry, and that is because it is too tight. Go ahead. Keep trying. Keep trying. She'd continue, her face all clenched like a fist, all determined to make her buttocks as hard as a cantaloupe. In her slippery, skin-tight polyester slacks, trying to get a piece of my aunt's ass was as elusive as pinching a helium-filled balloon. Now, watching the tape with friends a half-generation later, I'm not going to lie to you, that story still kills. Incidentally, I should also say that Simi was the first person who ever really felt me up. Bored at my Uncle Harry's Shiva house, she decided to check and see what was in the front pockets of my pants. She uncovered gum wrappers, old movie stubs, and a surprising amount of toilet paper, which she emptied out onto the kitchen table in three glorious scoops that I later referred to as my real bar mitzvah. Who made this marble case? Take Lisa's brother-in-law's This is excellent. I should probably also tell you that the entire Rosh Hashanah meal is consumed in 15 minutes flat. I mean the whole thing. The gefilte fish entree, the salad, the handmade coleslaw, the bean and barley soup, and the main course. 15 minutes. I remember the TV was on in the basement and Jeopardy had just started. By the time it was double Jeopardy, we were eating dessert. But then, paradoxically, dessert was something that lingered on and on. Boy, these moon cookies. Who made these moon cookies? They're out of this world. My grandfather ate dessert alone in the basement so he could watch baseball. My grandfather was of the mind that no one up there listened to him anyway, so he pretty much stopped trying. He spoke through his actions. Random, outrageous, incomprehensible actions. Like if he was tired and wanted you to get out of his house, he would come out wearing just his boxer shorts and sit right down beside you on the couch. You would collect your things and you would leave. This next part of the tape, of him and me in the basement, I never made jokes about. 
I was so embarrassed by my inability to make simple man-to-man chit-chat with my grandfather that when screening the tape, I would often just fast-forward through the whole scene because it pained me so. It was just around the whole Pete Rose gambling scandal. They showed him on the cover of Time, crying. That's what they call it, crying. Well, whatever it is. I'm sure he's very disappointed, actually, you know. This is what most of our conversations were like at the time. He would stare at the TV, and I would get all sweaty, trying my hardest to talk about anything I could think of that had to do with sports. Since I never watched them, nor did I play them, my talk revolved around the girlier aspects of sports. The scandals, the exorbitant pay raises, the poem I might have seen Muhammad Ali recite on the Mike Douglas show. And all the while, my grandfather just sat there. He was a legend. All of fame. Well, they can't, they can't omit him from that. That's up to the critics, I think. I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. Watching the video all these years later, actually 13 years after my grandfather's death, I realize in retrospect that this was around the time he was diagnosed with leukemia. No wonder he didn't want to talk. No wonder he went to the basement. At the time, except for my grandmother, he had told no one. Those kinds of personal things weren't ever talked about in the open. When we all got together, we argued about where the best place to buy a roast chicken was, or what was on TV. Well, did you see her today, Oprah, about that? This no, guy had a big one, and that guy has a small one. No, no one gets to finish a story. Conversation is like this verbal game of murder ball, back and forth, everybody shouting over everybody else, nobody really listening to anybody. But it goes further than even that. Here's my mother and her aunt Simmy sitting side by side on the living room couch with my grandmother, all of them kind of staring off into space after the huge dinner. Then, suddenly, apropos to nothing, one of them starts singing White Christmas. Then the other one, as though sitting on a different couch in a different universe, as if the thought had just arrived from out of the blue, pipes up with the exact same song, never looking at the other, never acknowledging she's there. Let's not even get into the fact that one, they're singing a Christmas carol in the middle of September, and two, it also happens to be the holiest night on the Jewish calendar. What all this chaos leads to, the logical climax and consequence of the entire evening, is when, in the middle of dinner, my father gets it into his head that right now, at that very instant, he was going to fix the loose knob on the front door. The doorknob had been loose for years at this point, and why he decided to fix it just then, to this day, he cannot say. So my father goes downstairs into the garage to get his toolbox, which to be fair isn't actually a literal toolbox, but a plastic lunch pail, which contains a wrench, a pair of rusty pliers, a plastic 12-inch ruler, and a screwdriver. The camera casually pans past a wall of neatly stacked spare toilet paper on the garage shelves. My Uncle Lou decides to help. Get up, up, and these screwdrivers are No, that isn't the one I want. Well, take the thing here. Now let me make this as clear as I can. When my father and Lou first started working on the doorknob, the time code in the corner of the video screen reads 627. They would only finish two and a half hours later, and almost all of which time my father spent on his knees, turning the doorknob screw around and around, for the most part, in the same continuous direction. Just a minute. He's taking pictures with I'm going to go down and get... Johnny, please, excuse me. The other guests sing more songs, try on clothes, exchange recipes, take third and fourth helpings of dessert. And through all of it, my dad, turning and turning, like a Jewish Lady Macbeth, one who's abandoned murder for home repair. 
At some point, people start to funnel out the door to go home. Lou, good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Take care. Okay, good night. take care. Going. They shuffle around his kneeling body and say goodbye, like none of this is at all strange. Okay. My father does not look up, still hypnotized by the turning of the screw. When I try to tear him away from the job, he tells me he can't help it. It's an emergency. That turning, that's a turn. That's a turn. That's a turn. So I thought this was the end of the whole thing. But having not seen the tape in over 10 years, I've forgotten that I also videoed the second night of Rosh Hashanah. So I keep watching, and then I see something that I have absolutely no memory of whatsoever. Sitting at the dining room table, sandwiched between my sister and grandmother, is this entire British family. Do you, do you brush it after you wash it? I brush it and I put in big, big rollers. There's an older Englishman, well-groomed and proper, sitting there sipping wine and actually sporting an ascot. There's his wife, an animated woman who chain-smokes Virginia Slims, and their daughter, a woman who actually tells anecdotes about current events and expresses genuine interest in my video-making. Well, I know my father, what he did was he had a lot of 8mm, you know, old movies from, from where, I was, you know, where I was growing up. It's like they wandered off the set of a different home movie and into ours. And the strangest part of the whole thing is that everyone's acting like nothing unusual is going on. Do you drink tea or coffee? Tea. As well as drinking tea, we drink amaretto, and everyone is bumming cigarettes off the old British woman. All of a sudden, we're all having a grand time. Even my grandfather is. Instead of sitting in the basement, he's asking genial questions like, Who made this beautiful apple cake? Here. It turns out the British family were my Uncle Melvin's in-laws, who were in from out of town. The evening plays out like that old Disney movie, Song of the South. The British are what appear to be real, normal people. And my family are like the cartoon bluebirds fluttering around them, trying in earnest to keep them entertained. I use one schmuck a week. Last year I used to use ten a day. I don't remember filming this, but I'm certain I identified with the normal people, not with the cartoon birds. I remember looking through the camera at my family and feeling like I was a million miles away, like I was looking into the large end of a telescope. It made me feel like less a part of them, like more of just an observer. But then there's one moment near the end of the night where I hand the video camera over to my grandmother, a total old country technophobe, so she could film me. Now you're filming me right now. You see? I have to close. <laughs> and when you, want to, when you want to stop it, you press the red button again. Okay, go. See? Yeah, move around a bit. So and there I am, moving around with my tapered pants, jelly bracelets, and long, moosed-up 80s hair, which, in retrospect, actually looked a lot like my mother's perm. Watching the video, I see the way my grandfather gritted his teeth when he stretched, or how he did this thing with his shoulders when he drank something that was too hot, and it's just the way I do it. Here I am comparing wrist size with my father. Look at this. It runs in the family. Oh no, you got a very thick wrist. That's a thick wrist. I think on I think on mommy's side of the family we have thin wrists. I told you I got very thin wrists. Posed against the British family or any other family since. There's no question as to what family I belong to. He's yeah. funny, Jackie Mason. I'm not nuts about the show, though. Me neither. Chicken soup. Oh, yeah, it's good. But he's not Jackie Mason. Jackie Mason is better when he's spontaneous. You're right. That's true. When I say I don't like a program, I set them all. I'm amazing. Big Night was produced by Jonathan Goldstein for This American Life. 
These days, you can hear Jonathan on his own show, Wiretap, from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I'm always happy to sit down to the dinner table because, of course, it means I'm going to eat. But there was one dinner I went to a while back that made me just a tad apprehensive. It certainly wasn't the food, and it really wasn't the company. No, let's just say it had something to do with the dress code. On a beautiful evening on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, diners at Dorian's restaurant are enjoying a buffet dinner of salmon, grilled vegetables, and skin-on mashed potatoes. There's much convivial chatting as some patrons sit and eat, while others roam around the room greeting old friends. But now the story takes a sharp turn from the typical NPR fare, which usually might be about a chef who uses only ingredients grown in vacant lots and rundown neighborhoods that have been converted to organic community gardens. Where this story is different, where this restaurant is different, where these patrons are different from any other patrons in any other restaurant in any other part of the city, is that each and every diner is naked. It's kind of hard to describe, except that I can honestly say that when I'm naked with other naked people, I really feel good. I feel comfortable, I feel confident, I'm totally relaxed. One of the other people put it that I've never been naked with other naked people when I did not feel good. Welcome to the Clothing Optional Dinner, a monthly gathering of nudists, or naturists, we'll define our terms in a minute, at various restaurants around Manhattan for a good meal and an evening out with friends. Their preference? Nudity. Their price? About 30 bucks. Their motto? No hot soup. Now, the mere mention to say family and friends that such a gathering exists can raise a few eyebrows. But the mention of actually attending such a gathering is sure to elicit the exact same look on everyone's face. Let's call it horror. But any nudist will tell you, and having stripped for the occasion myself, I have to agree that those fears disappear within about... Five minutes. It takes about five minutes. John Ordover is the founder of the Clothing Optional Dinners. Because what's sexual is inappropriate nudity or risque nudity. You get no sense of inappropriateness for being dressed the same way as everybody else in the place. Also, my wife found that for the first time in her life, men were actually talking to her eyes instead of to her chest. And um, she found a tremendously refreshing change. While everyone admits to sneaking a peek now and then, they also agree that naked bodies get real boring real fast, especially the ones with a lot of mileage on them, which on this night were out in force. Besides, everyone knows the unspoken golden rule. It's okay to look, but don't stare. (laughs) Then, of course, there is the fear that everyone in the room will look better than you. And trust me, ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you that nothing could be farther from the truth. In fact, after my own new dining experience, I would have to say that contrary to popular belief, there is really nothing beautiful about the human body. Does it take before you stop sucking in your gut? <laughs> well, I've never, I've, I'll tell you the truth. There aren't that many body beautifuls, you know. I, 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 you really don't feel self-conscious, you know. Now, let's talk logistics. First, sanitation. Each patron has to bring a towel to sit on. Second, temperature. Ordover always brings space heaters if it's cold, and of course, there's air conditioning in warmer weather. Third, other problems that you fear might arise? 
it rarely ever happens. Why? Because it really is not a sexual environment. Really, really. As people arrive at the restaurants, they can disrobe in the dining room or the restroom. Most choose the restroom. Being naked in a room full of naked people is not nearly as uncomfortable as dressing and undressing is. Once naked, however, everyone agreed that when the clothes go out the window, so do the pretenses. It may just be, be a coincidence, but it seems when people are in the nude, a lot of facades are dropped and personalities come out. And you, you make fast friends in a, in, a, in a matter of moments. Now to the terminology. People who prefer not to wear clothes refer to themselves as nudists or naturists. According to founder John Ordover, the nudists basically just like to be naked, while the naturists equate nudity with being outdoors. Now people say, well, what do you do when it's cold? Well, when it's cold, we put on clothes. The phrase is, we're nudists, not idiots. One of the nudist phrases is, um, clothed when necessary, new when practical. Of course, for the clothes-minded, as nudists like to call them, this might be a hard concept to grasp. Pretty much everyone who goes to a nudist resort goes to it so that they will be permitted not to wear clothes. And what I really like most about it is that it's like living the life of a pet. Get up, you do not have to get dressed, get in the shower, and walk right out the front door. Naked, free, unfettered, except even a pet doesn't go anywhere without a fur coat. Naked Dinner was produced by me a decade ago, when I was still willing to be seen in the buff. Now, not so much. But I digress. One thing you should never eat when you sit down to the dinner table are your words. Send them to us. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up after the break, dreaming of fat men and an epic Russian saga that starts with a meal and ends in revolution. Stay with us. Daughter has changed from school clothes to something more festive. Brother is spending an hour catching up on his homework. They're looking forward to an important date. Dinner at home with the family. What's the matter? Doesn't that sound exciting to you? Dinner at home. Ah, dinner time. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today we're listening to stories centered around the dinner table. Our next table has been set with great care for four women who've never met. Picture this, a sumptuous banquet with low lighting, flowers, candles, crystal, and of course, rich, luscious food. The topic of the evening, fat. I'm fat and fabulous. I am big, cuddly, sexy, um, delicious. I'm a French pastry filled with cream. Um, with a drizzle of dark chocolate. That's on a good day. Oh, 
to fill. We are going to have our cake and eat it two or three or four. <laughs> so dig in, warm up those knives and forks and enjoy because tonight there is no guilt. There is just pleasure. Mm. Wow. Shall we drink to abundance? Mm. Yes. Abundance. To abundance. <laughs> Lovely wine. Mm. Delicious. Oh, yes. Mm. Wow. Now, where what do we do start? Eat start, exactly. Prawns, perhaps? Mm. Mm. There's just so much to take in. Taste. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's lovely. It's I'm not fruity? sure. Is it fruity? I think it's chutney, raspberry-ish. Would you like to try some of this? No, I don't think I will. Thank you very Is much. Is anyone experiencing any Thank guilt you. yet? No. I'm sorry, I don't experience guilt when I'm eating. No, no. Not from yeah. Do you all diet? I used to. Well, I've tried lots of different diets. I haven't, yeah. I haven't ever willingly dieted. I dieted when my mother was alive, or when I was a teenager, when my mother was alive, because she wanted me to. But ever since she died, no diets. Well, I remember my first diet was for $200 and a, a new wardrobe. That, oh, that's what so was offered to me. Mm -hmm. that my, my, my father said, yes, I'll give you that. Uh, all the new clothes mm -hmm. that you need to fill your wardrobe and um, $200. And did you get it? No, no. I didn't. I wasn't successful. No, I, I just, in, in fact, I think I resented it. Will you drink to that, I tell you. Absolutely. Mm. Cheers. Mm. I'm currently dieting and still loving every solitary minute of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, that must be, um, I mean, it's interesting for me to see somebody as gorgeous as you oh. suddenly saying you are I now you. dieting. Mm. And food is a good thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Food is not a negative thing. It's no. a very good thing. So when did you discover this? I mean, when did you decide to, to go on a diet? I don't think I decided. Health-wise, it was decided for me mm, that uh -huh. I needed to lose weight. Now, that is the only angle that mm. I That is the on. only angle. I, I, I don't think I'd ever... I've tried umpteen diets. Mm. I've got a, a bookshelf at home, and there's literally like a full <laughs> row. Yeah. You know, I right would like to fit in your, better um, um, into what people consider the normal woman or the, the normal scene. For example, I won't go to a disco <laughs> or a nightclub. I'd feel an awful lot more comfortable going to places like um, your old waltzes or your, your old tea dances, because the women there are more my size and my shape, and therefore I'm more acceptable. Whereas when I go to a disco or a nightclub I'm putting myself up in comparison to these other women who are all tall, leggy, perfectly proportioned and that makes me feel bad about myself. I feel um, frumpy, I feel awkward, 
I feel terribly self-conscious that people are, are watching me or looking at me as, as some kind of a freak. It's not something I enjoy doing, even though, and, and this is the farce of the whole situation, I love the music, I love the beat, I love to dance, and I love to dance disco as much as any other form of dance. But when I get there, I'm too conscious of myself to do it. So therefore, the whole thing doesn't work out as a good experience at all. Change your doctor. You know, the, the, a lot of doctors trot out this business about you're too fat and if you lost weight it would be mm. fine, just as a sort of panacea or a placebo. Right. No, I'm waiting, a, I'm awaiting an operation at the moment whereby they have to go in through my tummy and there's no way they could physically do it at the weight that I was. So right. it, it really was medical reasons that forced me to but do I so. think, But I think on the whole it's really important to be very careful. I mean, I, I'm sure in your case it's right. But I think it's very important to be really careful about that stuff because mm. a lot of the time it's just offered it's as an... It's an easy answer, isn't yeah. it? Mm-hmm. There's somebody sitting in and front it, of you, I'm not feeling well, what's the obvious thing? You know, your eyes are crossed. That's yeah. right. But also you it demonises fat, fat people, absolutely. particularly fat women, and it becomes all your own fault. The trend in healthcare at the moment is that it's all your own fault. We're not going to do this operation because you smoke, we're not going to do this operation because you're fat, whatever mm. it happens to be, so that it completely takes the um, heat, of oh, oh, the onus yes. of healthcare and into the whole business of of, well. um, of it being your fault. Thank you. You're welcome. I like somebody always be at my elbow filling <laughs> that glass. Filling the glass. <laughs> I like them a little lower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, whether at my elbow, they are lower. <laughs> well, what about, uh, what about men? I mean, do you find that... Let me just tell you this this little story. When I was in New York, when I was living in New York, I was chased down the street by a man who caught up with me and he was persistent enough to, to ask me to get a yes from me when he asked me to lunch. Only later did I find out that he was a chubby chaser. He liked, only liked, fat women, big women, voluptuous women, Rubenesque women, Junoesque women, whatever you want to call it. Bigger than the normal woman, mm-hmm. you know, your normal, what is it? Juno-esque. Now, that really mm. got me angry, and I was, I was humiliated. Now, I have a funny thing about this. I, what I want in a man is, I want a man who is attracted to um, thinner women, but who chooses me you over anyway. those thin women. Mm. I want him to pass that test. I put that test for him and I say, to me, if he just wants a fat woman um, or a big woman, well, that's not what I want. I want someone who, in spite of my bulk, of my size, wants me, looks beyond that. To me, it's like the ultimate test. Some men who who are very shallow like to be seen with very, very thin women, but Mm -hmm. they like to go to bed with with big Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? It's warmth, it's sexuality, it's Mm -hmm. sensuality. It's a feeling of, you know, somebody is there, you know. I think it's that we try harder. <laughs> I, think, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I wouldn't think, know. Yeah. And I also think that we've actually stopped eating to talk about sex, and that says something very interesting. <laughs> I have to say I'm, I'm celibate, and I've been celibate for um, nearly seven years now. And I, I have this sense, although it's actually very good for me, and maybe now I'm, I've had enough of it as well. But it has been very good for me. But I have a sense that I possibly wouldn't have been celibate for that long if I hadn't been fat. Um, I think that there's that possibly I would have chosen to to end my celibacy quicker and all that kind of stuff. It, until you know, I needed all that time to come to terms, maybe with all the issues that were going on in my life. No, but I, mm. but I also 
No, that I wouldn't have had the space and time to do that if I had been more conventionally attractive. Mm. There's something about that that still isn't sorted. Do you still not think sus- My mother was also a fat woman, and she had a lot of problems with that. And on one particular occasion, um, I had a friend staying the night and we were messing around in the the bedroom in the morning and refusing to get up and being giddy like 11 or 12-year-old girls tend to be and being ridiculous and stupid and all of that. And my mother came into the room and she was furiously angry. She was wearing a vest and one of these um, old-fashioned corsets, a sort of bright pink thing that started under her bust and finished sort of halfway down her thighs and so on, and was was very ugly. Um, and it, I remember distinctly it was soiled at the back as well. And it was just there was something very sordid about how she looked. And she started walloping me. And as she walloped me, with every blow, she said, you are fat and ugly and disgusting. You are fat and ugly and disgusting. And this went on and on and on and was a total nightmare. And we were all completely hysterical, um, including my friend, who kept saying, but Mrs Gilbert, Mrs Gilbert, you can't do this to Maureen. She's your daughter. You're supposed to love her. You can't do this. None of this went on in her house. And through all this mayhem and hysteria, I remember being able to think, she's doing this because she hates herself. Everyone have enough to drink? Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Big women, I find that they're, they're much softer and much more vulnerable, and I think... Um, I think that's part of the reason why, well, for me at least, speaking for myself, why why I, I get bigger. First of all, I think it's a power thing to be more powerful, as powerful Absolutely. as my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's an old battle, I think, um, mothers and daughters. I'm starting to like you here. <laughs> <laughs> She's giving us more reasons. I'm more than just a pretty face, Claire. <laughs> Obviously, you Mama had a big this. hand in this. <laughs> big being the operative word. Yes. Yes, yeah. and now you see, I can associate with that very much. I would claim that I have got bigger down through the years because my mother (laughs) constantly wanted me to be smaller Mm. or constantly Mm. told people, you know, if somebody came up and said, gosh, isn't your daughter lovely? Yes, but you haven't seen her cousin and she's only size 10. I (laughs) cannot blame my mother because my mother has even used to say in the last couple of years, we're sure a woman in business has to be big. You have to be noticed. So I There you never go, you're associating that with power now. That's something mm-hmm. I, I feel I do, t- I do too. Now, a man, mm-hmm. if a man is, is fat, let's mm. just use the word fat. If a man is fat, he's not called fat. He's called big. He's mm. called powerful. He's called solid. Mm-hmm. A woman is called fat, weak-willed. Um, frumpy. frumpy. Let's get into the dirty yeah. ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Nobody's dared to call me this. Not to but your also face. that sense of Not being engulfing. Face. I think men are... There's a, there are some men who are very frightened of being engulfed. There are other men who long to be engulfed. There's hundreds Hence of men who are intimidated by us. Grossly intimidated by Poor us. Poor them. God yeah. help them. Yeah. Too bad. Tough. I have to say that um, anyone I have ever been with, it has never been... A problem. Do you know what I mean? It has never affected. Has it, been, has it never been a problem for them, but a problem for you? Do you apologize for yourself? Do you try too hard because of it? No. You don't? Oh, no. I do. Mm-hmm. No. I've never had a problem with the men I've ended up with. That's what I'm saying. No, but I'd have a huge problem with men in general. Because I find, because I work for myself and I work in business, I find a lot of men look at me as one of the boys. I'm not actually looked at as a woman. 
I which I feel hundred percent. Well, are you saying moment? Sorry, I'm sorry. I was just wondering if Claire was saying that because. Because of her size, or because oh, of purely of what, because of what my you do. Size. No, purely because they of look my at size. you as, as one of the boys but because yeah. of your size. Yeah. You're but not a sexual object. Not to them. a sexual object. But is it exactly. important to be sexual to everybody you meet? I don't yes. know if it is. I, I think it yes, is. Maureen. It's important it to be respected <laughs> as a woman. There are two sexes there. There are. There are men and there are women, and it's nice to be appreciated and respected for what it is you are. And I am a woman. Each one of us are a woman, and it's nice to be respected as that. I, I think they respect me as a woman. I, just mm. because they don't want to screw me doesn't mean one okay. way or the other. Right. What type of man goes to you? Because I have a problem. And I have discussed this long <laughs> and into the dark hours of the night with some of my mutual We've friends. We've got time. Go on. Right. <laughs> right. Why is it little men like me? Say I often wonder how I'm men actually see me. If I'm going into a crowd, a room or a party or a dinner or whatever where people don't know me. <laughs> There is always a, a dwarf in the room who is male, who sees me and his eyes light up. And I am always nervous of these people because I feel, my God, he's going to be sitting on my knee next, whispering into my ear. And I start beating him off with a look. They invariably end up by talking to me. Um, whereas I want the tall one to talk to me. Um, I want the one, because, you know, inside me there's a little woman wanting to be protected at all times. <laughs> if, uh, if if a male gives out the thing of you're my little woman, that's him in, right? I I will I will look after him forever. <laughs> but who really loves me is the small little man, which embarrasses me because they make me feel kind of nervous that I'm going to stand on them or kill them or sit on them by accident or whatever. Um, I'd love to get into, say, the mind thing, you know, or really, you know, two minds can meet. But this, I'm, I'm as bad as anyone else when it comes to physical size and, and how they look. <laughs> Show me a pillow, Mama. That was so wonderful. Why are we passing on to something? I'm sure it's delicious, but even still. Oh, this one was too, this one was too close to Maureen. Now it's close to me. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Oh, look, oysters. Oh, Jesus, I'm going to die. Oh, look, bulgur wheat. Oh, God, how gorgeous. That was an excerpt from Dreaming of Fat Men, produced by Lorelai Harris in 1994 for RTE Radio 1 in Ireland. Lobster. <laughs> to hear the rest of the story, visit us at thirdcoastfestival.org. supper. He says, SpaghettiOs. And he was eating it on the can. I said, make damn sure it's your last one. The dinner table doesn't have to be laden with oysters and lobster to reflect the care that went into preparing it. Sometimes the simplest things provide the most sustenance. This is especially clear in our next story, A Square Meal Regardless, by Jennifer Nathan. Cedric Chambers paces across his nearly empty living room. His longtime friend, John Gallagher Jr., leans against the window, waiting. Hey, you doing? Hi, how are you? Probably fine for that one. Okay. A customer has stopped by to pick through the pots and pans, old televisions, and piles of coffee mugs spread out on two tables in the front yard. These are remnants of Cedric's life, all for sale. Cedric is selling the house, too, the home in Jonesboro, Maine, where he was born. 
I grew up here in this house in 1932. There was nine of us children, eight of us children born here in this room. No running water, no electricity. Really rugged. Cedric has spent more than 20 years fixing up the house his father built nearly a century ago. I hate to leave here, you know, but I have to do it. I've come to terms that I have to. Last month, Cedric's friend John was diagnosed with lung cancer. John has decided to spend his final days in his mobile home, three and a half hours down the coast in Edgecombe, Maine. Choosing comfort over chemotherapy, John has asked Cedric, a former nurse, to stay by his side. He is going to move and stay with me until the day I go. The way it's planned, if it works out that way, I'm going to die at home. And the home is his until he wants to leave. It's his till he wants to leave or till he dies. The two old men met by chance 45 years ago, when John's wife was a customer at a beauty salon that Cedric used to own. They lost touch over the years, reconnecting when John's wife was sick, and a few months after she died, Cedric called him up one night. I said, what are you having for supper? He says can of SpaghettiOs, and he was eating it out of the can. I said, make damn sure it's your last one, because you'll never get another one. So I went out and I started cooking and stuff for him. He wouldn't have been around if I hadn't been here this long. I don't cook. I did when my wife was sick, but when he come over, I quit. No more cooking. And he's a firm believer in a, in a square meal. Every night was a square meal, regardless. Eleven years later, it's time for Cedric to leave his family home to care for John full-time. They sit on the couch in John's trailer, surrounded by hundreds of ceramic figurines and half a dozen cuckoo clocks. The two old friends haven't slowed down since they moved in last week. We're on the road all the time, to the doctors, to the grocery store, to Walmart. Or the grocery store, the drugstore, the Walmart, doctors. It's a routine. And then I cook. I've got to cook. We eat better than most families, I think, at our age. Most people their age have families to care for them. But Cedric never married, and John's four children are scattered across the country. Years ago, they never thought they'd end up taking care of each other. Never dreamed it. We never dreamed that we'd get old. At that time, we were never going to get old. With no one else to turn to, it's up to them to plan for the end of John's life. I've been to the funeral parlor. I paid for my funeral. I picked out my own casket. And I even wrote my own obituary. And it's all down to the hour. If I die tomorrow, all he's got to do is call the undertaker. And he's got everything. It's going to be rough. I know. I've, I've been there before with people. But he's a friend, and so I wouldn't do any other thing, you know, but to take care of him. He knows all about death and things, you know, and so we're not afraid. Three weeks later, it's a sweltering late September day. A plastic fan hums, pushing stagnant air around the room. Beads of sweat slalom down the creases in Cedric's skin. Hey, uh, just gone downhill. He's having a hard time now breathing, I think, so I'm going to have to give him some more morphine. John is naked to the waist, wearing little more than a bed sheet. He lies on a metal hospital bed by the living room window. 
he had an awful night last night. He started getting awful restless and he's hallucinating and I stayed with him all night. But he's calmed down a little bit. You want to lie down or do you want to sit up a while? <coughs> huh? I was on it, yes. You lay down, okay. Yeah. Okay, that's good right there. Slide right back down again. Yeah, that's all you do is lie down and back. <coughs> okay, good, get it out. Try to get some sleep. Oh. I'm shaking. I don't know why. Cut out the, I'll cut out this page, this part, and this page, and then I'll glue it together. John R. Gallagher, Jr., 85, of Edgecombe, Maine, died at his residence on Tuesday, October the 2nd. Cedric sits alone on the long, empty couch. The hospital bed is gone now, replaced by a small lamp with a string of rosary beads hanging from the shade. Survivors include two sons, John R. Gallagher III of Arizona, and his daughters came on Sunday. They didn't get to the funeral. A lot of people didn't know about it, you know. So quiet and quick and quiet. But he didn't suffer. John was a good seamstress also. Not a seamstress, a tailor. <laughs> he could hem pants, do anything. I can't buy any more pants because I can't afford to have them done. And nobody to cook for, just myself, you know. One night I had crackers and cheese and some grapes. That's all I felt like eating. I don't feel hungry at all. I know I've got to force myself to eat. I used to cook John beef stews, fish chowder, pork chops and sauerkraut, bake it in the oven and boil dinners. He said he wanted me to stay here in the place until I die. So that's what I'm doing. A Square Meal, Regardless, was produced by Jennifer Nathan at the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. A sad footnote, Cedric Chambers passed away in 2009. Now, my friends, I think it's safe to say that this next story is not like anything you have ever heard before. First, it's a Russian epic, but there are no words. Second, it features a dinner table in the beginning and ends up with tanks, cannons, and a vast chorus of singers. Third, well, hold on to your hats. Here's Happy Birthday, Darling. Did 
That was Happy Birthday, Darling, produced by Dmitry Nikolaev for Radio Russia Kultura. When we asked Dmitry how he would describe Happy Birthday, Darling, he said, quote, It is a story of how love turns into hatred that destroys everything and kills everybody. There you go. Enjoy your next dinner. Let's hope it doesn't end the way that one did. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communications service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound also comes from Lula Cafe, celebrating its 15th year in Logan Square, serving sustainable food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. More information about Lula's menus and the farms they work with is at lulacafe.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.